we're very, very grateful today um, for the last of this series. We have big stuff coming on board in November. We're doing a series called Finding Joy. In every instance, in every circumstance in your life, we're going through the book of Philippians, and it's going to be a life changer and a joy bringer. So I hope you're going to be here for us. Today, we're talking about, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? It sounds kind of rappy, doesn't it? But for those who are not as hip-hop inclined as yours truly, here's what we're asking. Can you trust the Bible? Okay, this is an issue for a lot of people. So we're going to look at some of the common arguments that you cannot trust the Bible. Right? And we're going to kick the tires and see if there's anything there. And then the second part, we're going to say, if you did trust the Bible, what would your life be like? What could it be like? So um, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to have a good time doing it. I'm so glad you're here. I love you. But we got serious business, so we got to ask the boss. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are the best. And you are the one that we look to. You are the one we need to hear from, not me. So I ask you to stand in my body, use my voice and my mind, Lord. Communicate your truth in your word, in your way. Lord, and and if you would please open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears so that we can hear directly from you. And have our lives changed. Because all the ways that we try to change our lives, ourselves, don't work. But we need you. So we give it to you. We give this time to you. We give our ears to you, our our hearts to you. We love you in Jesus' name. So, can you trust the Bible? We're going to look at, can't get to the answer before we ask the question. We're going to look at some of the common arguments that you can't do it. So here's the first one. It's not, this is not what the original writers wrote. It was changed by scribes over the centuries again and again and again. There's an author, an atheist author named Bart Ehrman, who has become very, very popular as as a Bible critic who says, you can't trust this. You can't trust this. Why? Because if you look at the manuscripts, there are 400,000 mistakes in the manuscripts. And guess what? Bart Ehrman is right. There are. But here are two things that Bart Ehrman also knows that he's not telling you. Number one, 99% of those mistakes are simple spelling, grammar, or writing of one character that is unclear. Kind of like us writing instead of an apple, a apple. It's still an apple. I have had a apple before. Here's another thing that Bart Ehrman knows that he's not telling. That none of those instances change or impact any central Christian teaching or practice about anything about the life, death, burial, resurrection, truth of Jesus Christ or how we're to serve him, the central truth doesn't change anything. Zero. How do we know this is true? Because of science, because of archaeology, because here's something else that Bart Ehrman doesn't tell you. That 58 
hundred ancient manuscripts of scripture that are close in age together and close to the dates of the original, which are the gold standard for biblical, ancient biblical, or, or any kind of literature validation we have of scripture. That is more than all other classical literature of all genres put together still doesn't come anyone, anywhere near what we have of the Bible. So, they also all agree with one another with astounding consistency. We have more manuscript proof of the biblical texts than we have of any. So anybody who says they study the classics, this is what they're talking about. If you're going to reject the Bible, that it is not accurate, you have to reject all the classics because we have far more proof that this is precisely what the original authors intended and wrote than anything else. Next up, what else you got? The Bible has contradictions. Anybody ever heard this one? The Bible has contradictions. Here's the irony of this. Many of the people who claim this have never really read the Bible. Then if somebody says the Bible has contradictions, ask them, have you ever read it? Right? Now, is it possible, let's be honest, let's give this its fair shit. Is it possible to take two different sections of scripture, pull them out of context, put them next to each other, and say they contradict each other? Is that possible? Absolutely that's possible. But that is also possible with any other piece of literature. Let me give you an example. What you imagine you're in ninth grade. If you're in ninth grade, this is going to be particularly easy for you. Right? And you are assigned a book to read and do a, a book report on. It is Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. So you go home and you crack the book, and here it is. The first sentence says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now, reading that, you slam the cover and you say, this book has contradictions. I am reading no further. And instead of writing a book report on the entire book, here's what you write. I have discovered in the first sentence that this book has contradictions, so I will not read it. And you turn that in. What is your grade likely to be? Zero. I have gotten this, right? Same with scripture. Let me give you an example. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. John the Baptist says about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, which is it? Is Jesus the good shepherd or is Jesus a sheep? It appears that there are contradictions, right? There's con he either is the shepherd or he's a sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who leads us by still waters and green pastures, leads us home. And when it was needed that one of the sheep would be a sacrifice for all the others, Jesus said, me, I'll be that. I will go to the cross on behalf of those whom I love, whom I have led. I will pay the penalty of their sins on the cross, in their place, as their substitute. I will become all the things they want to be free of, and I will put them to death. 
so that I can judge sin without destroying them and I can have them with me forever. Is Jesus the shepherd or is Jesus the Lamb of God? Yes. Yes, both. And he clears it up when he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No contradiction, just beauty. Moving on, what else you got? You can't take the Bible literally. I would agree. You can't take the Bible literally, except when you should. There are parts that you take literally. There are parts that you take figuratively. The Bible is a compilation of history, of eyewitness accounts, of testimony, of prophecy, of poetry, of epic poem. You don't interpret all the same way. There are parts that you take literally. There are parts that you take symbolically. And everybody understands this. For the most part, except for my daughter, Quincy, when she was four years old. Anybody ever met Quince? Yeah. Good girl. A little clueless when she was four. Now, we took her to Epcot, like the Disney park, and we let, we have a, a son who's four years older, we let them pick out like one souvenir, what they want. Like Tommy would like max out the budget. He just wants the most expensive. Quincy, not like that. She don't want a hat with the ears. She don't want a stuffed whatever you got. She decided for her souvenir, here's what she wants. She wants that guy who writes your name on a grain of rice. I kid you not, a four-year-old is what she wants. So, okay, it's like five bucks a letter. I'm getting out of here for 30 bucks. You can't even buy a tissue at Epcot for 30 bucks. I'm feeling lucky. So here's, here he is, he puts the headgear on, like Q-U-I-N-C-Y. That's it. Right? And you can have it mounted in like a necklace or a bracelet or a pin or an earring. She don't want none of that. No jewelry. She just wants the grain of rice with her name on in the little plastic sleeve. That's all she wants. And this girl is happy as a clam. Right? Great. We're going down the road. She got her, she got her rice and she's happy. Well, we go like another couple hundred yards, and all of a sudden, she got the rice no more. I said, Quincy, where's your grain of rice? She said, Dad, I ate it. I ate it. She took that literally. She was not supposed to take rice literally. It ceased to be food. When they wrote the name, I paid 30 bucks for it. Same with the Bible. You take it literally when it's literal. You take it figuratively when it's not. When you say to me, Tom, you are ripped. You are not saying that I appear to you as a piece of newspaper which has been torn into strips. What you are saying is that I am one shredded specimen of manhood. You understand how to interpret that? The Bible is the same. Moving on. Next. Here we go. I have problems with some of the social issues raised in the Bible. This is big for some people. I respect you if you do. I, I, I don't agree, you would say, with what the Bible has to say about sexuality, about marriage, about the role of women, about slavery, whatever. First of all, I would suggest 
that in a cursory reading, you and I may not know as much about what the Bible teaches about these issues as it would appear. Dig deeper. Dig deeper because often it's not saying what you think it's saying. Okay? Secondly, and we don't have time to give each one of these issues the depth that they deserve, but we will in, 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 in the future. I would say this, that if you look at Scripture, the Bible was used to bring greater rights to women, to abolish slavery, not the other way around. Did, did some uh, misguided people use the Bible to justify slavery? Yes. But ultimately, it was those who called people deeper into the truth of Scripture who set us free from that, who continue setting us free from that. And sexuality. All right, really quickly, if we actually practiced what God's guidelines are for a joyful, fruitful, faithful life sexually, what would we not have in our lives and in our world and in our families that we have now? A lot of heartbreak, heartbreak a lot of regret, Okay. So before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, let's understand that. But the bottom line here, I have problems with it. I have problems with this issue. I have problems with that issue. I get it. Here's what we do. Keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? The answer is right there. Say it with me. Jesus. Jesus. Old Testament points to him. New Testament points to him. The person, work, truth, Redemption, salvation, love of Jesus Christ. That is the main thing. That is the main thing. But what about all the other social issues? Why are you asking? Let me ask you that. That if Jesus agrees with you, you'll follow him, or you'll follow him until he disagrees with you, and then sayonara? A lot of people are like that. Look, if we keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus Christ, then if he is God, then agree with him in everything. And if he's not, why are you worried about it? Reject it all. Reject it. If he's God, obey him in everything. And if he's not, why are you worried about it? Keep the main thing, the main thing. Okay. Last objection. The apostles made this up. Made it up. It is myths. It is legend. It is a story that they wove together. They made it up. This is the, this is the most hysterical of all of them. This is really, there's, there's very little to this, although it's very popular for, for people to say this. Why is this so ludicrous? Here's why. They included embarrassing details about themselves that no thinking person would ever include if it was made up. Right? When, when Peter, like Jesus' wingman, it, it, when, when Jesus was going to the cross, Peter tries to keep him from sacrificing himself. You know what Jesus calls Peter? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Don't you think Peter and the boys, he's going to say, 
let me have the whiteout right here. That Satan thing, eh, not making the cut. Or, or the part where I deny Jesus three times, I'd rather that not get out. Let's clip that out. Can you, can you picture doubting Thomas? I'm going to go through history as doubting Thomas? I don't think so. Get that one out of here. How about this? How about this? A woman of ill repute, a very low reputation, Mary Magdalene, is noted as the first proof, the first witness of Jesus after he rises from the dead. Do you realize in that day that women were so wrongly disregarded that their testimony was not allowed in court? If you were trying to make something up that would be believed, you would never have a woman be the first one to see the most important truth of Scripture, that Jesus beat death and everything he said was true, unless it actually happened that way. But there are even bigger reasons. What's that? There is so much detail in the New Testament scriptures, verifiable history, names, places, events, feelings, nuances that are there. What does that prove? Plenty. Do you know why? It is one of the things that convinced C.S. Lewis, who at the time was an atheist, who at the time was one of the world's authorities on ancient literature. It convinced him that this is not fables and fiction. This is the true account. This is the word of God. Because C.S. Lewis knew this, that the modern era of fiction writing, which you and I enjoy if you, if you like reading fiction, where authors include details and nuances to give the appearance of reality, the genre as we know it, didn't exist until 300 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago, which caused C.S. Lewis to write this. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them are like this. I know none of them are like this. Of this, the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, which means eyewitness accounts, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. There is nothing like it. You look at Beowulf, you look at the Iliad, no details, no nuances. The Bible is full of them. And this technique for fiction was not established until 300 years ago. Final reason they didn't make it up is no one would die for a lie. Say, wait a minute, Perkra. There are plenty of people who die for just silly reasons. Amen, I agree with you. There are a lot of people who would die for a lie that they believe is the truth. What we're saying here is name somebody who would die for a lie that they know is a lie. If, if the apostles made this up, then tell me why did every single one of them willingly die a painful 
death, rather than deny that Jesus is who he said he is, Savior and Lord, the one who came, lived, died on the cross, and rose again to new life in front of them. Why would they die martyred rather than save their skins and just admit that was all made up? All of them, with the exception of John, who was not killed but exiled onto a prisoner's island to spend, live, and die his last days. And Jesus did that so he could reveal revelation to him at that time. No one would die for a lie that they know is a lie. So part D. Since you can trust the Bible, as I would assert, how would your life, your actual life, be different, be better if you actually did trust the Bible? Before we go there, we want to get a baseline for each one of us to kind of evaluate where we're at right now. Right now. So I'm going to ask you in your mind or on your worksheet or both to complete this sentence. I refuse to start my day without blank. Right? It might be coffee. It might be Diet Coke. It might be breakfast. It might be, you didn't list my favorite thing, hitting the snooze button. Right? Whatever it is, it might be a shower. I refuse to start my day without exercise or a clean house. Look, if you named one of those last two things, I love you. I just don't get you. I just don't get you. But I love you. I do. Maybe you won't start your day without checking the news of the financial markets. Or you won't start your day without time with Jesus in his word. What would you honestly say? Honestly. It doesn't have to stay that way. But what would you honestly say? This is a good way for us to determine what we currently view as essential versus what we view as optional. Optional. So let's look at what our lives would be like if we actually trusted the Bible. You would have fuel for your life. You would have fuel for your life. The Bible says that the Word of God is alive and active. And if you and I trusted it, it would be alive and active doing stuff in you. You would have fuel for life. Jesus put it this way. Man, woman, shall not live by bread alone. Okay, just a sidebar. This is showing that a no-carb diet, eliminating bread's not wise. Okay, man shall not live by bread alone. But by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, the thing that fuels you is not just food, it's not just drink, it is my word. It's like saying, I washed my car, I waxed my car, I even shined up the windows, I sprayed that creepy oil on the tires, it makes it look really dark. I, uh, I changed the windshield wiper fluid, I topped up the oil, it still won't run. Because there's no gas in it, right? That E on your dashboard doesn't stand for enough. It stands for empty. Your, the fuel that your car runs on is gas or it's electric, whatever that is, whatever your car was designed for. He's saying you are designed to run not only on food and drink, 
for your stomach, but the food and drink for your soul is my word. And you say, well, I'll tell them I'm not buying that because I know a lot of people who don't even own a Bible, or if they do, they don't read it, that have plenty of energy for life for their definition of life. And even that is a gift to them from God. Not for God's definition of what he created you for. Abundant life in him. Overflowing, effective, world-changing, life-altering, servant, joyful, eternity-shaping life that comes from the word of God. It comes from the word of God. I got a car. That's the owner's manual. It's the owner's manual. Tell me how to drive. Some of you think I should read it better. I know. Um, this was written by the people who thought up, engineered, and actually built the car for the owner, who is now me. Now, if I operate this car in a way that conflicts with the owner's manual, I void the warranty. So it's wise for me to understand this and abide by it. This is the owner's manual for you. It was written by the person who engineered, thought up, and built you. And if you and I live in a way that contradicts what the owner's manual says, we void the warranty. And the owner gets upset. And by the way, you and I aren't the owners of you and I. God is. And we're glad that he is because he loves you more than you love you. And he's more protective of you than you are of you. And he wants more joy in life for you than you do. And so he gives you an owner's manual because he's the owner. He wrote the manual and he loves you. He's trying to put up guardrails so that not only do you get home, but you get home with the fewest amount of regrets and the most blessing. Don't try to go it on your own. You would not only have fuel for life, you would have more faith. You would have more faith. I can't tell you, most of you know that my full-time job is at Western. I'm the foundation director. I've been for 22 years. My office is in the Aspinall Wilson Center next to the Loft Townhomes if you ever need anything. When I'm not traveling, if I'm there, I'm there for you, okay? You come in. But a lot, a lot, of students come and see me and, and almost through tears they say I can't, I can't hear from God anymore I don't feel like he's there I don't hear him, I don't sense him and my heart just breaks for them the solution that you are struggling with is in God's word the hope for your hopeless situation whatever it is, is in God's word the direction for your wandering and your questioning is in God's word. The answer that you're seeking so diligently is in God's word. The peace that you're living without right now is in God's word. The joy that you're lacking in your life, even when you're doing things that should please you deeply, is in God's word. The love that you are starving for and looking for in everyone and everything is in God's word. 
You want it all, and you should. You should want the solution, the hope, the direction, the answer, the peace, the joy, the love. And yet, if I ask most of us, how often, how long, how regularly are you in God's Word? I get the verse of the day on my phone and I read it before I, I get that. That's like a salt lick, okay? I'm not knocking it. It's good, but that's not a diet. How often? How regularly? How long? Many would say, eh, I'm just too busy. Busy doing what? Digging deeper the hole that you or I might be stuck in? Come on. I need this too. I need this too. Let me show you my phone. Some of you know that uh, three and a half years ago, uh, I had a traumatic brain injury and I needed brain uh, surgery to, 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 to bring that about. Oftentimes, uh, I feel diminished. Like, like I can't do things that I used to do, that I can't measure up, that, that, I'm, that I'm too damaged to be of use to anybody. You see this worn out piece of paper? It has a verse written on it from 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It's in my phone because it sticks out. And every time I open my phone, I have to see it. And I take it out and I read it. And it says this, and God is able. God is able for what I'm not. To make all grace abound to me. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, I may abound in every good work. I read this. I memorize this. I reflect on this. I stand on this. You can too. You need to. There'd be more victory in your life. If you did, you would have more faith. Jesus said this, so faith comes from hearing directly from the voice of God to the ears of your soul and hearing through the word of Christ. And you have access to that at any time. What you need is Jesus speaking directly to you because he reveals himself to you through his word. I've often said that the Bible is the only book that every time you read it in faith, the author shows up. It's amazing. Try it out. It's amazing. Speaking directly to you about who you are, about who he is, about how much he loves you, about how active he wants to be in your life, rescuing you, reviving you, leading you, using you, calling you home, and holding you forever, and being more than enough in your situation, whatever it is. Forever. Forever. Who doesn't want that? I do. I need it. Here's one. You would find the direction you need. Who needs that? I need that. I'm thinking about 1997. This is before many of you were born. This is the year that we were to move from New Orleans to Benison to take this job uh, at the university. My wife, Sheree, was driving this old, it was old at the time, this old Jeep Grand Wagoneer with our two children in it uh, in, on the interstate in New Orleans in afternoon rush hour traffic. Now, as she's driving along and weaving in and out of traffic, which she does very well, thank you, 
um, suddenly there is a gust of wind and the hood of the Grand Wagoneer blows straight up against the windshield. Anybody ever see Tommy Boy? Okay, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. It is sucked and stuck to the windshield. Apparently, the day before, someone was topping up the oil and did not fully latch the hood. It is not important that we determine who this someone is. It is not integral to this story. It is not important. What is important is that she was completely in the dark, which our kids thought was hysterical. Right? Cherie is just in hysterics. All she got is the side view mirrors to see what's behind her. But she's more concerned with what's in front of her as she's barreling this huge, heavy piece of iron through rush hour traffic. So Tommy, who is eight, is now hanging out of the passenger side window navigating. I got you, Mom. I got you. Get over to the shoulder. You're looking good. You're looking good. There's nothing there. You're all good, except for that pole. Oh, no. What? <laughs> except for that pole. We, we mention that to him every time he drives now. He's 31. Except for that pole. She was driving blind. Now she did. Praise God. Got over onto the shoulder. Everything was cool. But you should never drive blind. It's never a good idea. But isn't that what you and I do with life? We're going to just figure this out. We're just going to call the shots ourselves. We're just going to do it like our friends do. We're going to do it like our parents do. We're just going to do it like everybody else does it. Don't you and I need wisdom and direction from somebody who's got a better seat or somebody who's wiser? Don't we need reassurance and clarity? We all do. And you've got a place to go when you don't know where to go or how to get there. The Bible says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path when I don't know where to go, when I don't know what to do. Your light that lights up the area necessary for my next step. And then the next step. And then the next. Well, I want to know where the destination is. Here's the reason that God doesn't tell you. Because if you're anything like me, if he told you exactly where he wants you at the end, you and I probably wouldn't check back with him until we got there. And the whole point of it is for us, for us to walk with him to where he's going. So he gives us the light for our next step. So we're always looking to him as we go through life. And that he promises that. And then in Isaiah, this promise, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Walk in it with me. When you turn to the right or to the left, which one of us doesn't need that? I do. I know you do too. And the word is here for you. Lastly, last reason, last way that your life would be better if you and I actually trusted in the Word of God. You would know and personally experience Jesus' love, and you would love him deeply and personally. Jesus 
tied our devotion to His Word, to our love for Him, over and over and over again. He said this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you camp out, if you make your home in my word, if you read it, if you, if you eat it, if you drink it, if you study it, if you memorize it, if you believe it, if you do it, if you count on it, if it becomes your hope, then you're mine. You're, you're my peeps. You're the one who loves me. Then if you don't, then maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Pastor Chip Ingram was right when he said your relationship with the Word will determine your relationship with the Lord. And if this is true, if this is true, I would ask you, how's your relationship with Jesus? And some of you might say, wait a minute, Tom, because I'm not buying that. My relationship with Jesus is rock solid, even though my relationship with His Word is kind of shaky. Some of us would say that. And for those of us who would, might I suggest that Jesus and his word might be more closely connected than you're thinking they are. Check this out. John, the apostle, wrote this, and the word became flesh. Now, this is underlined on your worksheet. I'd ask you to circle it, star it, look at it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, who is John talking about here? Come on, it's church. You're going to get it right. Come on, who is he talking about? Jesus, right. And what's Jesus' nickname? The Word. The Word is his name. The Word with skin on is Jesus. The same Jesus who thought the world needed you who thought that he wanted you, so he created you. And even when you wanted nothing to do with him, he loved you, he came for you, he lived for you, he died in your place so that you could be fully forgiven and fully free from everything and anything, past, present, and future. And he loves you, he will never let you go. That Jesus, he's the word with skin on it. So when you and I ask, is the Bible reliable? Can I trust it? The real question you and I are asking is, is Jesus reliable? Can I trust him? And he wants to, longs to, is right now speaking to you. He wants to speak to you of himself of yourself, of everything in your life, and every way that he wants to work in you and through you. You are going to change the campus because God is going to speak into you. You are going to change your team because God is going to speak. You are going to rescue friends because God is speaking in and through. You are going to overcome obstacles that people say are impossible because God is speaking in and through. You are going to know God in a way that when people speak to you, and with you, his love and his truth are going to pour out of you because he's speaking to you. Do you know what happens when God, he longs to speak life and love and hope and faith and peace and power and healing and truth and grace into you every day. And when he does that, he will also speak it through you. And that's amazing. Do you know what happens when God speaks? Let me remind you. 
galaxies are formed. Life springs into existence. Storms are calmed. Evil flees. Confusion is replaced by clarity. Anxiety is overpowered by peace. The sick are healed. The dead are raised. The guilty are forgiven. And the prisoners are set free. And the hopeless find hope. Need any of that? I do. And it's here. He's speaking. Are you listening? One last story. 38 years ago, when Sri and I uh, started dating, we were in high school, and um, we lived in New Orleans. We lived about an hour apart. So different high schools, just couldn't get there. Um, so there was only one day of the week, Saturday, when I could go over there and take her out on a date. There was only one night of the week, Wednesday night, when I could call her on the phone. Because back then, um, it was a long-distance call, and long-distance calls cost you lots of cabbage, right? They were expensive. There was no texting. There was no email. So we dated once a week. We called on the phone for an hour only, once a week. And because we were limited by that, we wrote to each other every single day. Sometimes just a piece of notebook paper. Sometimes we'd find a card. Sometimes something else. But we would write. We were, oh, oh, it was mushy. It, it was mushy. But we would write about everything she was doing, everything I was doing. We'd send prayers for each other. We would send encouraging scriptures. We, and, 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 and some mush, right? Um, but I had a love letter in my mailbox every day of the week, except Sunday, but then I got two on Monday. It didn't matter what kind of day I had. It didn't matter what somebody did to me. It didn't matter what somebody said about me. Because the most important person in my life at that time had written me a love letter, and it was waiting for me at home in my mailbox. And the same was true for her. After 18 months, when we could finally, we went to college, right, to different schools right next door to each other, right? How strong do you think our relationship was after 18 months? Oh, oh, it was strong. It was strong. But what if, I'm going to ask you to imagine, what if... Shri had come over to my house and gone in my closet and found a huge box full of hundreds and hundreds of cards and letters from her to me, unopened. Unopened. In my, now, I'm not saying this happened. This did not happen. I just want you to imagine what if. What if she saw it? Then to defend myself, I might say, hey, Hey, sweetie, I know you love me. I just don't have to read about it in different ways every day of the week. She would then have every right to have said to me, maybe you're sure that I love you, but the fact that you do not want to hear my heart every day makes me pretty sure that you don't truly love me. You got that? You tracking with that? Good. Let's flip the script. 
It's not about me, and it's not about Sheree, and it's not about those letters. It's about you, and it's about Jesus, and it's about his word. You received it. You have it again and again and again. And maybe it's unopened. Maybe it's unopened. And if so, Sheree's imagined words to me could be Jesus' real words to you. Maybe you're sure that I love you. Oh, I know that you love me, Jesus. I don't have to read about it every day in different ways. Maybe you're sure that I love you, but the fact that you don't want to hear my heart every day makes me pretty sure that you don't truly love me. And I haven't met one person who would want that to be true. I believe you do. And I believe you want to. And I believe that you and I can start opening the love letters one by one by one until you're so steeped in his love, so addicted to his goodness and his nearness that you wouldn't think of getting up or laying down or going about anything without hearing from him. I didn't make this up. Long ago, someone far wiser than I, St. Augustine said, the holy scriptures of, are our letters from home. Letters to us from home, love letters of God's heart to us until we get home. And then that won't be necessary because you'll be with the word in the flesh. But until then, that's your food. That's your hope. That's your direction. And it's all for you. Let's pray. Lord, you're good. And you are not scolding or shaming any of us. You're just calling us back to love. Back to your truth. Lord, I, I, I feel like so much of our lives were. We're looking for a treasure and you have put the treasure map in our hands. And the treasure is you and all that you want to be in and through us. Lord, drive us to your word. Lord, a lot of us have, have some repenting to do to say, we're sorry we've neglected the most important. We've neglected you and what you have to say. We don't want to do that anymore. And Lord, you're just welcoming us home and saying, if you only knew how much I love you, everything would change. Would you spend time with me and let me show you? We're saying yes, Lord. Yes. And if anyone here does not know you personally, Lord, that they would say right now, I believe, Lord, Jesus, that you came to forgive me that you died in my place and you rose to new life for me. Forgive me, come into my life. You be my Lord, you be my Savior. You call the shots. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen.